Coffee. Uh, welcome everybody. Uh, I don't. Did Doug put a, a sign-in sheet down there? He'll bring he'll bring it down when uh, he gets here. Uh, and just remember, if you're watching on the live stream, welcome. Just please uh, do type your name in so that you're there, and you can feel free to submit questions as we go along. Um, we've been praying out of this book the last couple of weeks, and we'll I'll continue to introduce different prayers uh, throughout the course of the next few months, just from here. And feel free, obviously, to page through it yourself. I just want to say another important way to pray, though. Is, uh, is to speak to God in your own words, right? To speak to God in our own language. We believe that God, uh, through the church, has given to us a whole beautiful kind of tradition of different prayers that we can offer, foremost among which the Mass that I know I've seen some of you at, uh, the Our Father, which we prayed the last couple of weeks that we hear uh, in the Gospel. Um, but you can also speak to God just about what's on your own mind and your own heart, to make known your own petitions to God. Uh, to speak to God about difficulties or doubts or things like that. Um, it's always important to kind of bring all those things to the light in prayer. So today I'm just going to pray kind of in my own words, then we'll turn it over to Larry to, uh, to get us started. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Almighty God, you are the author of all good things. We thank you for the opportunity to gather today to come to know you more completely, and in doing so, to love you and learn to serve you. We ask that you would bless our time together, open our minds and hearts, to the gifts which you wish to bestow upon us, the gifts of faith, hope, and charity, and let all that we say, think, and do bring you greater glory and honor day by day. And we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You're going to get one of these? Thank you, All right. I'm on the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we, um, I didn't finish this section on scripture, and so let's, we'll pick up there and then we'll go on to prayer. And any, first of all, questions? So, so one thing I didn't get to last time was the canon of Scripture. So canon means the book of the list of books that we recognize as books of Scripture and thus as inspired by God. Right? So basically, I mean, last week we said um, Scripture has a unique privilege of being inspired by God and therefore the Word of God. Right? So in, in uh, church, when... Um, the, the lector reads from the Old Testament, or the New, we answer the word of the, word of the Lord. And, and if I were to, you know, I don't know read um, something from Dante or Thomas Aquinas or any saint, we don't say the word of the Lord. We might say, wow, that's really beautiful or inspiring, but we wouldn't say the word of the Lord, right? Because that's the unique privilege of these books. I know back there you can't see them, but... Um, but those are the, that's, this would be the full list of 46 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament. And um, the Protestant Bibles are missing seven of the books of the Old Testament. So the Catholic canon and the Protestant canon isn't exactly the same. And so this is why um, it will be more helpful to get a Catholic Bible than a Protestant Bible. For the parts that they're the same, they're the same, right? It's just that some of these books got left out 
at the time of the Reformation. Um, questions on? Uh, and this is um, an example. Uh -huh, yeah. Why did they get left out? Um, so the, um, yeah, thanks. I, they got left out, and it's a complicated story. So the Jewish canon isn't exactly the same as the Catholic canon either, right? So the apostles, when they um, evangelized right, the Roman Empire, they used the broader Jewish canon that had been translated into Greek. So the Hebrew Bible had been translated into Greek a couple hundred years before Christ. And, and that was really handy for um, um, when the apostles went through the, the Roman world to make use of a Bible already in Greek, right? Because the people in the Roman Empire knew Greek, but they didn't know Hebrew. And so that, we call that the Septuagint, and that's just a Greek word or Latin word for 70, that um, because of a tradition there were 70 translators, um, and um, that Bible had the broader canon that included those seven books. Um, about 100 years after the death of the apostles, um, the, um, the rabbis, leaders of the Jewish community, um, were uncertain about the proper canon, and they decided to go in a more conservative way, um, taking out those books that there was some doubt about. And so that's how the Jewish Bible today, the Hebrew scriptures, doesn't have seven of the books that we have in our Old Testament. The time of the, but the, um, the early church um, used all of the, the larger canon, right? And what, um, the books that got left out are the books that are the latest in the Old Testament, right? And that's why the rabbis were uncertain because the prophet, the line of prophets came to an end. The last prophet is about 400 BC. And so um, how do you know so how would the Jewish community know which are the inspired books or not? You would want to have a prophet um, um, authoritatively declare, right? After the end of the line of prophets, um, the synagogue couldn't know for sure. And, um, and especially after, um, whereas the, the church, the, um, the apostles and their successors have the authority, right, to judge something like that, right? In any case, Luther at the Reformation decided to follow the Jewish canon and took out those seven books. And part of it, I think, has to do with doctrine that we'll talk about later when we look at something like purgatory. And there are evidences of belief in purgatory in those later books that got taken out of the Protestant canon. But, yeah, that, okay. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't do this. But. Uh, yeah, so what's interesting is that, um, so, I'll try to be quick, sorry. Yes, the, I'll give you two minutes. Yeah, the, the big thing would be that the Jewish, so if you read like the Mishnah, which is like mm. a collection of uh, traditions, rabbinic traditions from like the 200s, they have, there's in the, in the book called Yadayim, which means hands, because mm. they would, one of the ways you, they would talk about inspired books is they're the books that make your hands unclean um, because they're holy. You can't touch them or you have to do a special washing ritual, right? Um, in Yadayim, it even talks about how the, the rabbis are debating our Ezra, the Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes scripture. 
because they're not sure. Because say like the book Here, of uh, yeah. Esther, I mean, yeah. Esther doesn't even use the word God once. So, so these why are the is yeah. And so the, the issue is like, well, if they're not sure. They're saying yes, yes, yes. But even the Babylonian Talmud in the five hundred, they're quoting Sirach scripture. Yeah. So it's so their canon actually comes way later after. Right. Right. So here are the books that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in a Protestant Bible. It's the Old Testament Book of Wisdom, which is a magnificent book. Um, it has a magnificent prophecy about Christ in chapter 2. And it's probably the last book of the Old Testament from about a, the first century B.C. Right? And it, yeah, so it's a magnificent book. Ben Sirach, another, it's, a, it's like Proverbs. It's full of, um, it's called wisdom literature. And it came from the second century BC. Um, first and second Maccabees are from, at least they're recording the war with the, um, the Maccabees against the, um, the Greeks, King Antiochus. And that's the origin of um, the feast of Jewish festival of Hanukkah. Right? So we know about the Jewish, the events um, that are celebrated in Hanukkah from these books, Maccabees. Um, the book of Tobit. Um, is very beautiful. So it's a story about um, Tobit um, being accompanied on a journey by, his, by Saint, um, the angel Raphael. Um, and yes, I encourage you to read all of these books if you're not familiar with them. Um, Judith, Baruch, and parts of Daniel and Esther. All right, so that, that's the differences. Calvin? Okay. So if we go back to the numbers. I need the numbered uh, or the words chronological order. It went from of the books. No, it, no, no, it went from you, you threw a lot of names in there. I, I need the appetizers. Yeah, do, here. So my advice is don't worry too much about this. No, no. Just you've got the whole of these scriptures. No, I'm, I mean, mm -hmm. this, I, I tried to explain to them yeah. because I grew up a Baptist. I'm trying to explain mm -hmm. to them why I am so engulfed and enveloped uh -huh. in this culture. So the only way I can reach them is through the ABCs. That they okay, here's the, the ABCs are this. The church used these, the larger canon from the beginning. I understand, I'm just trying yeah. to, I, I understand that it broke down from Hebrew to Greek, and then it was translated from Jewish to, I need the breakdown of okay. how it was broke down and you can give me any kind of numerical time frame that it was broke down in. Is the two just been like the two hundred? BC. BC. So, so 200 BC, but we were going off the, the Bible that I'm reading that I received from you guys. Mm -hmm. The 400 year old watered down version, three or four that came from Jesus. But we re referenced it now 200 years ago, a 200 year old piece of knowledge. So, so, so 200 BC, that was before Christ. We were talking about 480 last week. Yeah, so 400 AD last week we said was when the church decided on the full list of the books that we call the canon. And that was accepted in the whole church for over a thousand years before the Reformation. So for, from the year 400 to the year 1520, yeah, the, the church used that whole canon. And that's, that's how, that should give us the, in other words, how do I know what the canon is? I have to receive it from the church. And, and, and I'm, I'm 
And they were, right, so the books were written in Hebrew, right, the Old Testament. I'm not here to, to, to go against it. I gotta, yeah. If I'm, I, I want people to fully understand what I'm learning. Okay. Okay. So let me go back. So if you take the Old Testament here in, the, in this Bible, the books of the Old Testament were written, we don't know exactly when, right? So from the time of Moses up until the time of Christ. Okay. The books of the Old Testament. I'm fine with this. I'm fine with the A to 400 AD all the way to the 16th okay. where it's watered down. I'm at the Hebrew where it was translated from Hebrew the 100 years in between. Okay. Read the translation that was in Jewish. I need, um, like I said, I need you to rewind because the translation that was in Jewish that was broken down until when and how long is it? People only understand how to break it down in No, no, don't worry about it, Calvin. I'll try my best. No, I'm sorry. I'm going to try and explain your, answer your question. So the, the Jewish scriptures were written from about 1,000 B.C. up until the um, time of Jesus. Okay, 1,000 B.C., okay. They were translated into Greek 200 B.C. That translation is more or less the canon that we follow today. Or even less, or down even to, um, so the latest book, the Book of Wisdom, might be from 50 B.C. We don't know exactly. We, we don't have, they don't come with dates. And we don't, right, we don't have the originals. The only way I can reference we, is that you have the oldest form of Christian text and you have the best knowledge to get to my God. So that's true. That's true. And the reason we have that is because of what we talked about last time, tradition with a capital T. Right? In other words, the canon... How do we know today what Bible to use? And we want to use the Bible that has been transmitted by, what, by the apostles. And so this is an example of apostolic tradition with a capital T. Um, and it's a good example of something that's in tradition but not in scripture. Right? And no place in scripture are you going to find the books of scripture are these. So the only way we know um, what in fact are the books of the Bible, so the, this is because many Protestants go by scripture alone. And it doesn't make sense because scripture doesn't tell us what are the books of scripture. How do we know what are the books of scripture? We receive it from the church. Right? And it doesn't make sense that in the 16th century, to take out some of those books, right? That, yeah. because yeah. the only... Me, do you want me to draw a timeline? I don't think it's necessary. We're going to get uh, okay, too distracted by this. Okay. Yeah, so basically, this is what we just said. Martin Luther um, wanted to take out a book of the New Testament, the book of James, the letter of James. Um, but he was unsuccessful in that. But in any case, it doesn't make sense to take out any book that the church has read for over a thousand years as the word of the Lord. Okay. Basically, we know the content of Scripture from the church, not from Scripture.
And therefore, we have to look. So this is just names. Those seven books that are not in the Protestant canon, sometimes they're called deuterocanonical. Don't worry about the name. Um, Protestants call them apocryphal, right? But we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't want to call them apocryphal because they're inspired scripture. Thanks. Okay. All right. Then, Old Testament remains, has perennial value. Even though, I, if you're um, starting to read the Bible, right, if you want to take up and, and get to know this book, I strongly encourage it. My advice is not to start at the beginning, even though Genesis and Exodus are really important books, but to start with the New Testament, start with the Gospels. But nevertheless, the Old Testament has a perennial value. Right? It doesn't cease being the Word of God because the New Testament has been added to it. And so the Old Testament is valuable for many, many things. Valuable because it gives prophecies about the Messiah, about Christ. Valuable because it gives the fundamental truths about God and how to worship him. Valuable because um, a storehouse of wisdom and prayers. Right? So the book of the Psalms is um, the most beautiful collection of prayers because inspired by God. Right? And that's why the church prays those Psalms in... Um, a prayer called the Liturgy of the Hours every day, um, seven times a day. Right? So the Old Testament has a perennial value. But let's look at the New Testament. So the Gospels, the four Gospels, are the heart of Scripture because they're the principal source of um, our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Right? And so of all the books of Scripture, that's the place to start, is those books that tell the life of Jesus. Sometimes, so the Gospels were written about um, from anywhere from 30 to 60 years after the death of Jesus. And sometimes people worry that they transmit faithfully what Jesus said and did because they were written much afterwards. All right, what should we think about that? And um, we shouldn't worry about that. And the reason is because they were passed on orally in a culture that did that. In other words, and we, I think I said last time, at the time of Jesus, of only a tiny percentage of, um, of the world or even of Israel could read. And so they passed on um, texts orally by memorizing them. And the Gospels would be the most commonly passed on texts. Um, even before they were written down, there would have been an oral tradition. Right? And so we shouldn't, there's no reason to doubt that the New Testament and the Gospels give us the, the truth about what Jesus said and did, but not necessarily the exact words, and that's not important, right? Because we couldn't necessarily give the exact words of what we did you know, last week, but we can give the, um, the substance of what we've done and said, all right? So that's what the Gospels are giving us, the substance of what Jesus said and did. Questions on that? And we've got, uh huh. So, the Gospels, well, the four Gospels are all told in basically the same story. Right, but, uh huh. Told in different ways, though. If they all came from the same oral tradition, then why would we need all four? Because um, they're different perspectives. So, Matthew is writing, as one of the apostles, from his perspective. And he, had, um, he was the first 
um, so Matthew's gospel, according to tradition, was given to the Jewish people in their language. And you can see, if you read Matthew's gospel, he's interested in the prophecies and how they're fulfilled. In other words, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And the other three gospels are writing now to um, a Greek audience um, and a, more of a pagan audience. And so, in particular, the gospel of Mark. Mark was the secretary or spiritual son of St. Peter. So St. Peter went to Antioch and then to Rome, and Mark's gospel is giving us Peter's preaching in Rome. Right, so that's a great source, but because he's preaching to pagans, he leaves out much of the Jewish things that Matthew gives. In other words, it's a different audience. So when you're passing along, like, when they'll stop and it was like an old fishing story, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so Matthew would, would give a certain, right, his gospel to a certain audience, and then people would memorize Matthew's gospel and transmit it, um, because this was already being said in the liturgy, even before it finally got written down. It was being said, in other words, what did people do in Sunday Mass back in the year, I don't know, um, 30, you know, eight, um, five years after Jesus' death? Probably they were um, transmitting these stories about what Jesus said and did, right? And that's the origin of our Gospels. Um, and then they got fixed and written down and translated. So Matthew translated into Greek, and then the others all written in Greek. The last to be written was John's Gospel, and it's, I think, the most profound also. So John was the disciple who um, had a, um, at the Last Supper, he puts his head on Jesus' chest. So he was, in some way, the beloved disciple. Um, and he is the one who took Mary into his house. So Mary lived with John for the last, I don't know, 30 years, 25 years, we don't know, of her life. And so John um, meditated on the life of Jesus longer than anyone else. He lived like 30 years longer than the other apostles. And he wrote down his gospel last. And it's the most mystical or theological. No, so only two of them, right? And that's Matthew and John. And then the other two Gospels, Mark and Luke, are by disciples of apostles, right? So Mark, a disciple of Peter, and Luke, a disciple of St. Paul, right? St. Paul, though, wasn't one of the original 12, right? But became an apostle afterwards um, in an unusual way, right? Because he saw Jesus on the way to Damascus. All right? So that's, that's the origin of our four Gospels. Okay. okay. And then the kind of the final point is um, we need to read the Bible as, even though it was written by many, many authors over a long space of time, over a thousand years, it's still one book because it has God as its author. Right? And so that's why we can nourish ourselves on the whole of the Bible. Um, and my advice to you is to read it and have some plan of reading the Bible. Um, and you can do it simply starting on St. Matthew and reading through the Gospels. Or you can use the church's um, daily readings for daily Mass as a way to do it. And there's a, an app 
if anybody is interested, and I can show you at the end of class, called iBreviary, that you can, so I have it on my phone, and I, I can't wait, thank you. Is this erasable? Okay. It's a free app. I have it on my phone, and I use it every day because it gives me the readings for mass for every day. Um, and if anybody wants, I'll show you afterwards. Thanks. The Hallow app is also OK. OK. All right, let's, I'm going to switch now to prayer in the Christian life. So the catechism does this last. So there's a magnificent section in the catechism on prayer. And it's the fourth part. And I'm not going to get through it today or anywhere close. But um, we'll look at and we'll begin it. because. And the reason for this is because you should already be praying um, now and not wait till we get there in, in March um, to start praying. All right, so what is prayer? Um, so the, the catechism, um, in this paragraph 2559, speaks of prayer simply as the raising of our mind and heart to God. Right? So it doesn't have, you can see from that definition, it doesn't necessarily include words. Right? So I can raise my mind and heart to God silently, or I can ask him things, or I can praise him. Right? But, and all of that's prayer. Right? What makes it prayer is that I'm lifting up my heart to God, wanting to enter into relationship with him. All right? And it's really important. And I can't, and that's the understatement. Um, here's the way to think about this. If I want to enter into relationship with another human being, all right, I'm married. And what would it, you think about our marriage if I never spoke to my wife? Right? You would say that there's, um, you can't possibly continue that way. And that's true of the Christian life. If I don't talk to God, that relationship cannot continue. All right, let's suppose I talk to my wife five minutes a day. Um, you'd also think that there is something gravely wrong. Many Christians maybe speak to God less than five minutes a day, but that can't be a healthy relationship either, right? If God is my father, and God is my bridegroom, my spouse, I need to be speaking to him in the same kind of way that I would in my human relationships. All right? And so, and we do that through prayer, and that's what makes, thanks, that's what makes prayer so fundamental to the Christian life. Right? We don't get to know God if we don't speak to him. And if we don't listen to him, and we can listen to him in two ways. We can listen to him through the scriptures, or we can listen to him speaking in our heart. But you might say, well, how do I know when he's speaking to my heart? Um, and you will know if you try it. In other words, it's not a matter of technique. Um, but simply, um, we come to understand things and see things when we open up our heart to God, right? when we lift up our heart to him. Right? And we speak out of the depths. In other words, the best kind of prayer, and the way most people pray when 
um, normally when things are not going so well, right? In other words, and it, we shouldn't limit it to that, but very often in life, that's what happens. In other words, so that's how it was for me. I never spoke to God in my life. I never prayed once. And the first time I prayed was because my wife said she didn't want to live. Um, and so um, very often in human life, we do pray out of the depths. And that's what God wants to hear us always, and especially when we're um, experiencing grave um, difficulty or pain or suffering. And um, it's so important that prayer be sincere. In other words, we're not putting on a show to anybody. God knows our heart, right? And so when we open up our heart, he already knows what I'm going to say. And so you might ask, well, what's the point of praying if he already knows my heart? Well, that would be the same thing in um, any other relationship. It very often happens that my wife knows what's in my heart, but it's still good to say it to her. Um, even something as simple as, I love you, right? Um, because that's what makes a relationship. Right? And we don't know how to pray. I, I don't know how to pray, and I, I think it's safe to assume that you don't either, no offense to anybody here in this room, and that's okay, because we ask the Holy Spirit to teach us to pray. All right? We don't know how to pray as we ought is from St. Paul, Romans 8.26. Right? But we want to receive it. We're a beggar before God. So basically, prayer is begging. But Jesus says, ask and you will find, right? Seek and it will be open to you. Um, knock, uh, knock and it will be open to you. I butcher that. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so raising up our hearts to God. And we can raise up our hearts to God for four fundamental reasons. All right? The first reason is one that we maybe um, leave out the most, and that is to adore him because of who he is, because he's our God. In other words, to adore him because he's the Lord, because he is goodness with a capital G, beauty with a capital B. He's the fullness of every good, and so we adore him. And then we thank him because everything that we have, our life, um, every natural gift, all of our friendships and relationships come from him. Right? None of us made ourselves. And so we ought to thank him right, every day. And in fact, that ought to mark our life, a spirit of thanksgiving, even if I'm not actively praying. All right? But once I'm aware that I've sinned, there's a third reason to speak to God, right? And that's to say I'm sorry, to express contrition. And then the last one is to ask for whatever we need. There's a, an acronym for this, ACTS, A-C-T-S. So A for adoration, C for contrition, thanksgiving, and the S for supplication, which is the same as petition or asking for whatever we need. Uh-huh. Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. Right, so basically, all prayer is going to fall into one of those four categories. Right, and we can mix them together, right? We can adore him and thank him at the same time. Thanks. I'm getting, I love whiteboards so much. Okay. <laughs> I love <laughs>
And so prayer, we said it's lifting up one's heart. It's a, so this is a famous definition of prayer by a saint, St. Therese. Prayer is a surge of the heart, a simple look towards heaven, right? a cry of recognition. cry of recognition because even if I, so the first time I prayed, right, I didn't know him, but in some way there's recognition because he's already in our heart. And so when we pray, there is, um, we're not praying to a stranger. And it embraces trial and joy, right? So we should pray in times of trial and pray in times of joy, just like we would with a friend, right? So in times of joy, we want to share that joy with somebody. Nothing is um, perfectly happy if I've got it all to myself, right? And I don't have somebody I can share it with. And so we should share our joys with God, right? Who's ultimately giving us that joy, right? And we should share our trials with him for all kinds of reasons. First of all, because he's our intimate friend, but also because he can help us in those trials. Jesus, and there's a passage from John's Gospel, chapter four, where Jesus goes to, it's the middle of the day, he's hot, he goes up to a well, and there's a woman there, the Samaritan woman at the well. Right? And he asks her for a drink. And she's really startled because Jews don't ever speak to Samaritans. And a man in Israel didn't address a woman um, alone like that. And so she's surprised. Um, and then, so he's asking for a drink. And then he says, you know, but you could ask me for a drink. And he's talking about a different kind of drink. In other words, you could ask me for grace to fill your heart. And so Jesus is a beggar in some way. He's the one who's got to give, but he has to ask like he did to that woman at the well, right? And he has to come and say, I thirst, because he's seeking us so that we can seek him back. Right? In other words, he's thirsting. So I love this line from the catechism. God thirsts that we may thirst for him. Right? The problem is we're the needy ones, right? And he's the full one. But he's thirsting for us to thirst for him. And so often, we have this idea that I'm self-sufficient. I don't need God, right? So that was my idea, 29 years, never prayed, right? Because I'm self-sufficient. And we feel self-sufficient until um, we find out we're not. Um, but it would be better to find that out earlier. All right, so prayer is the response of faith to God's promise of salvation and God's invitation, right? It's the response of love to Jesus's thirst for our hearts, right? So on the cross too, Jesus said that, right? When he was dying on the cross, he said, I thirst. It was one of his last lines. And yes, he was physically thirsting, but it's reasonable to think that that I thirst was also thirsting for our hearts and not just for, you know, water. Um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, right, she great service to the poor. Um, in all of her chapels, she puts those words, I thirst, on the, um, next to the cross, right, to remind us that Jesus is thirsting for our heart and for us, therefore, to pray and enter into relationship. The prophets very often complain on God's behalf 
So God says something like this. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. I thought God is a fountain of living waters. And that's a metaphor for grace, for his gifts. And the prophet's saying that, what are we doing? We've hewn out cisterns, right? So if you live in ancient Israel, water was scarce. And so what they do is they would make these stone cisterns and the rainwater would fill them in the rainy season and they would remain, right, in the dry season. Half of the year in Israel, it doesn't rain from something like April to, um, to November. And, and so the prophets say they broke, they, instead of me, the fountain of living waters, they made cisterns with holes. It is the heart that prays, right? And what we mean by that, it's not, when we go into prayer, it's not, I can't just be, you know, and having an intellectual problem. It's going to be an as existential. In other words, God is concerned with the whole person. And when we use the word heart, that's what we mean. And that by which we respond to, to someone else's love, right? To God's love. It's also a covenant relationship. Right? God is the Lord of a covenant. A covenant is like, so the, God made a covenant with Abraham, right? And with Moses and with us in Jesus. But if, what's a covenant? Right? The best example of a covenant is marriage. So marriage is a covenant in which the spouses right, give themselves to one another in a mutual way. So if God enters into a covenant with us, that should be surprising. Right? Because a covenant is a mutual relationship. It's not a one-way street. Right? And so if God enters into a covenant, there's going to be receiving and giving back. And so how do we give back? We give back up first and most importantly by giving our heart to him in prayer. Come on. It's a, as, sacred as, it, as sacred as it sounds, uh-huh. it comes out in today's world as a contract. Well, contract, I think, is a less perfect way of speaking of a covenant because I mean, a contract is too legal. A covenant is sacred, right? And so, so marriage, you can say, I mean, people used to speak of the marriage contract. I'm not, I'm not taking away from the essence of the word. I mean, okay. It's just like, uh, like if I tell you, uh, the best way I can describe it, like I said, I think what Okay. That's right. No, that's right. Kevin, no, that's right. Listen, covenant is is different than contract because it includes the heart. Okay. I don't think so, but. So in a covenant, right, the partners need to have a relationship and speak with each other, right? And so prayer, we could say, is the language of the covenant. All right. 
Let's look at the Our Father. So we went through this prayer a couple weeks ago, right? And so this is the prayer that Jesus taught, the Our Father. And it's got... It starts... So why does it start the way it starts, Our Father? What could it... It it could have said, My Father. So why does it start with the Our Right? And it's simply because all of us are in this covenant relationship. And so it's a prayer of the church. Right? And so we address God as our, but then the most beautiful word in the whole prayer is Father. Right? God is our Father who wants to enter into a familial relationship with us. And he's in heaven, not on earth, and we indicate by that that he's perfect. He's not needy. Right? So we address him because he's our father who wants our, our hearts. First petition, hallowed be thy name. What do we mean by that? What's hallowed? Okay, what else can we say? Blessed. So the, the first thing we're saying in hallowed be thy name, so the very first petition is that God's name be loved, revered, blessed. In other words, the first thing that Jesus asks us to pray for is that we might love him and that he might be loved on earth and blessed um, and his name be glorified. We, right, so when we pray, very often, right, what's the first thing that I ask? about myself, right? And so giving us the Our Father, what Jesus is doing is he's putting his Father first in our hearts, right? Hallowed be thy name. And so the Our Father is, the way we should understand it is as a summary of what we should be asking God, right? And in the order that we should be asking that from God. So the first thing is that God be glorified and loved. And then second, again, not immediately about us, thy kingdom come. What's, what does that mean? What? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh-huh. So just whatever, whatever he sees, whatever he sees fit. Okay, that's going to be the next one, thy will be done. But what about thy kingdom? What kingdom is he talking about? Kingdom of heaven, all right, so you're, in other words, heaven come, but what else could it also mean? Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom in the Gospels. Right? He came saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Salvation. salvation? Okay, yeah, so it refers to salvation. So that would also be heaven, but that salvation starts here, right? And so when Jesus speaks about um, the kingdom, what does he mean? He makes a, a bunch of parables about the kingdom, and he compares it to mustard seed that will grow and become a great tree. He compares it to um, um, leaven that gets put in a loaf, right, that grows. He compares it to a net that catches all kinds of fish. So what is he talking about? It's easy. But... 
The church, yeah, he's talking about the church. So that's actually what we're praying for. The, right after that God be glorified, hallowed be thy name, we're praying for the church, your kingdom come. In other words, that the kingdom grow, that the kingdom spread, that the kingdom include me, that it, the kingdom reach perfection, and that's heaven. But this is already the kingdom. So we're praying basically for the church in all of her stages, and that we be found in that church, and that the church grow and flourish, right? Because the church is Christ's body, right? And the church is the communion of his God's sons and daughters, united through baptism and the sacraments. Interesting that you describe it that way. Um, growing up, you know, as a child in Catholic grade school, we were taught that that is referring to the end of the world, essentially. Yeah, so... Earth and mm-hmm. in heaven Right. I think it's also referring to heaven, but I think that we're missing something if we only take it that way. Right? Because Jesus cares about the church now, right? Because we're alive now. And so we're not just praying for this distant thing, but we're praying for the, something that we're a part of already. Right? That kingdom come. Because the coming of the kingdom isn't just a one. Jesus was asked about that in the, in the Gospels. Um, when does the kingdom come? And he says, you know, don't, um, it's, it's not that kind of a thing that you can say it, it comes in, you know, I don't know, St. Louis in the year 2023. Um, it's something that's already at work. He says, the kingdom is already in your midst because Jesus is that kingdom. Jen? Jen? Can we just have a general in there? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So Mm-hmm. That's, that's right. Well, actually, when we say that it come, we're asking, yes, that heaven come, but also that the kingdom come in the sense of spreading and growing, reaching all people, coming to all people. I think all of that is part of the meaning of it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But that's how it was always in my head too. Just reading it, I wasn't taught that. Heaven. But looking at it in context now, mm-hmm. of course, it's the church. Thy will be done on earth. Yeah, exactly. Heaven. Right. So the next petition, I think, helps direct us. Right. It's not only so. Thy will be done in heaven. That will is going to be perfectly done. Right. But and already is perfectly done. But what we're praying for is that His will be done in our lives, in our world, and in the church. All right? And so that third petition is that we match, that our wills match God's will for us and for our lives. All right? So that God be glorified for his kingdom, church, and that his will be done on earth and here, and particularly in my heart, um, as it is in heaven, right? But again, all the levels, doesn't exclude any level. So when we say, thy will be done, we mean peace on earth, among other things, right? We mean peace in our communities, in our families, and in ourselves. Right? And that what sin is, is not doing his will, right? Sin is rebelling against God's will. Right? And so we want his will to be done um, in our lives, all right, so those are the general prayers in which we're praying 
for, we could say, the whole world, right? That God be glorified. We start with God. He comes first, that his name be loved. Secondly, his kingdom, and then his will in everyday affairs. And then we turn now to ourselves. And the first thing that we ask is, give us this day our daily bread. All right, what are we asking for? Okay, it includes that, but again, so it definitely includes that. It includes all of our needs, right? Give us our daily bread. So our necessities for the day. But what else does it include? There's something important. Jesus gave a, a discourse on the, the bread of life, right? Jesus is the bread of life. And so give us this day our daily bread is also give us the Eucharist. And he wants to feed us with himself frequently, right? So daily bread. Um, not everyone is able to receive it daily, but, um, but we, if we can, it's a magnificent thing. All right? So that daily bread includes our temporal needs, the, that is the needs of the body, right? The needs of our, our families, etc. but also our spiritual needs. And therefore, the bread that sustains our spirit as well as the bread that sustains our body. And of the two, which is more important? That, yeah, that which sustains our our spiritual life. In other words, the bread from heaven is even more important, but of course, we need to be alive to receive the bread from heaven. Okay. Um, after we've asked for all of our needs, temporal and spiritual, we ask for forgiveness. Because obviously that could be included in the previous, because that's a huge need. Right? Forgive us our trespass. What, what's meant by trespasses? Sorry. Sins, right? Just simply means sins, right? Forgive us those, what we've done wrong, how we've harmed, how we've gone against God's will and harmed others, right? So forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, all right? And notice that condition. So this is the first petition that there's a condition on. Why is there a condition as we forgive those who... It's simple, right? It's to show us that we're not going to be forgiven if we don't at least try to forgive everything um, that we've endured from others, right? So, um, questions on that? And that's not an easy thing, right? Forgiving somebody who's harmed us doesn't mean that I have to, you know, be best friends with them or that I have to put myself in harm's way. Right? But it means recognizing that God has forgiven me and therefore I should forgive the harm done. And will good for them. Right? And will for them that God forgive them. But if I've been, you know, suffered sexual abuse, I don't have to go back and, and put myself in danger, obviously. Right? That's not what forgiveness means. Um, and lead us not into temptation. All right. Uh, that's pretty straightforward, right? But does God ever lead us into temptation? If he's our father, right? So the, it's reasonable to think, no, he doesn't lead us into temptation. But um, Satan is the one who tempts us. But God permits it. So what we're asking for is not that... Um, so can I pray that God and um, Lord never let me suffer temptation? Would that be a reasonable prayer? No, right? Because that would, that's not realistic 
from our experience. What we're asking for is that he not let us fall into temptation, right? That's the meaning. We're gonna get tempted, and that's actually a good thing because in a temptation, we've got the opportunity for meriting, for um, asking, recognizing, first of all, it gives us the opportunity to recognize that we're weak and need his help, and then secondly, it um, gives us the opportunity to be faithful in difficulty and to love, therefore, in a stronger way to overcome that temptation. All right, so we're not actually asking that we never get tempted, but we're asking that in the temptation we be aided so that we don't fall. Okay? And then the final petition, um, deliver us from evil. And that evil includes... Same thing, all different kinds of evil. It includes physical evil, it includes moral evil, it includes um, whatever is harmful to us. Okay? Questions on? And then one last thing that is included there, the evil one. So some translations of the Our Father um, deliver us from the evil one, that is from Satan. That would be included too. Questions on the Our Father? So. Um, it's, it's the Lord's Prayer is a perfect prayer because even though we don't have to use those words, it's giving us what we should always be praying for, right? Those seven petitions are, we could say, a universal uh, list of things that we need and in the right order, starting with God and ending up um, deliver us from Satan. Questions on that? We could say the first part is up to here, and that's basically um, not just about us, right? And then from here on down, give us this day our daily bread. Those are the things that we personally need. Okay. All right. Prayer, the most common kind of prayer is vocal prayer, but it's not, um, not the only kind nor the most important kind. But it is very important because as social beings, Vocal prayer lets us pray with others and lets us pray the same prayer that others also pray, right? So a perfect example of vocal prayer would be the Our Father, right? So we all at the beginning of class, let's say, pray the Our Father, all right? Um, and other examples of um, vocal prayer would be the Hail Mary. So we make a, a petition to Our Lady, to Mary, and the Rosary, which is a combination of the Our Father and Hail Marys. Um, the Psalms, right? So that's a beautiful form of prayer is the 150 Psalms in the Old Testament. Right? That would be the, the vocal prayer of Israel. Um, and then the divine office, you can find that at this um, website, I breviary, um, um, as a prayer that's different every day. The and so it's mostly Psalms and it enables us to pray what, People are praying throughout the whole world um, as the same prayer, right? It's something that all priests have the obligation to pray and all consecrated um, nuns and um, religion, so monks and nuns pray by obligation the divine office. Lay people don't have an obligation, but it's a beautiful thing. But it takes time. And it's a, that's part of its purpose, is that it's something you pray at different times during the day so that you remember God and lift up our hearts to him in different times of the day. And it's something we can pray with other people. All right? 
I think that's not so difficult. Um, but let's look at, um, so private prayer. And um, so we use the word meditation, but it's not the same as um, Eastern forms of meditation. So when I was an atheist teenager, I um, paid some money to get um, to do tr to learn transcendental meditation, where I was given a mantra and there's a technique. Um, Christian meditation isn't like that. There's no technique, right? It's not something that you can um, buy a mantra or something like that because it's again it's about the heart, as we've been saying all along. And so, private prayer means a prayer that I'm doing in my heart to God that's not scripted, right? In other words, there's no one formula. I'm not. I'm not doing vocal prayer that it's written out, right? And the most common form of, it's also, you might hear, see the expression mental prayer, right? So it's private prayer or mental prayer, meaning a prayer that's happening, but maybe that's misleading mental prayers if it were just my brain, because it's gotta be my heart principally. And, and meditation could also be misleading, right? One could think that's more my brain, but no, that's gotta be principally the heart. And so meditation is asking, it would be, and let's say you've heard the gospel after hearing the word of the Lord, say it's Sunday Mass, and I want to ask God, what's that about? Or even like we were just doing, and thy kingdom come in the Our Father, wondering, what do I mean when I pray that? And putting that before God, or what does it mean to ask that your will be done in my life? Is there something that needs to be changed in my life to make my will accord with your will? Right, so that would all be a form of mental prayer, because I'm, I'm speaking with God, and I'm doing it um, verbally, but interiorly, without a script. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm asking God things, and I'm wondering uh, how my life corresponds to what he wants for me. Um, and I want to, to listen to him. In other words, so it's, very, it's posing questions to God, but it could also be simply expressing my feelings to God. In other words, it's entering into some kind of conversation, whether I'm asking him things or I'm simply telling him um, um, how my heart is, right? I could, um, so meditation can be um, sharing my life with him and seeking to share his life by asking him things. Um, so it even could be something like this. A subject of meditation is, I mean, I'm in RCA. Um, show me what it, why I should be Catholic and what's beautiful about your church and um, why I should enter it. Right? That, those are all questions right? that would be good to ask God. Um, and then you can ask him to teach me to whatever. Right? So a great prayer that's always on target is teach me to love. Right? Teach me to love you and um, the people in my life. Right? And that could be the people, my spouse, my children, or people that I have difficulty relating with. Right? So all of that would be included in, um, in meditation if I'm asking and I'm trying to hear him speak back to me. And my advice is to, um, to read the gospel of the, so read Sunday gospel is given to us to meditate on, 
right? And it's something, one, way, one form of prayer is to meditate on Sunday's gospel throughout the week and ask him different things about it, right? How does that apply to my life? Um, what do I need to, to do? And um, what should I even notice in your word, right, in the, in the gospel that maybe I haven't seen before? Um, right? So asking God to help us understand his word and his will. Right? And so we can, the simplest way of meditating is to take a text, right? Because otherwise, we, what am I going to talk to you about? Right? It's, we can, and, and so it can be easier, make it a lot easier to start with something like the gospel, right? Or the reading, it could, doesn't have to be the gospel, right? It could be the first reading from Mass or the psalm or the second reading. Um, something that the church gives us um, or just even to start somewhere reading the Bible and do the same thing. Right? So that's one way of doing it. Another way is there are prayer books that can give us meditations, things to ask about. Um, and so written by saints that we can find helpful. But again, there's no um, method other than this. When you start out praying, the way to start is to put, so we use this phrase, put myself in the presence of God. What does that mean? And God's everywhere, right? And I can pray in church where God is present in the tabernacle, we'll explain that later, in, in the Eucharist. Or I can go, say in my home, a part of the house. So I've got in my basement a God corner. And by that I mean a little place with a crucifix, a kneeler, and um, a Bible, and some prayer books. And so I can go there, and the first thing I should do is remember that God is there, and that he's above all in here, right? He's dwelling in me because he loves me. And then to speak to him, simply just to ask for his help, maybe. I don't know how to pray as I ought. Help me to be in relation with you. And then you can start speaking about whatever you feel called to to discuss with God. Questions on that? This is actually, so I think of all the things that at the beginning of our conversion, this was the most helpful. Advice to set aside a time. So this is my advice, you don't have to take it. It's not an, a strict obligation, but to set aside an appointment with God every day and to start modestly. Right, so you can start with 10 or 15 minutes. Um, something that you can do and keep it um, so that you have a day-to-day -day time. It can be before you go to bed. It can be when you get up in the morning. It can be some time. And it's helpful. It doesn't have to be. But it can be helpful to be at the same time, just so something I can look forward to, something I can stick to. And part of it can be looking at my day right, and to thank him for the... So let's say I put it before I go to bed. right? I can thank him for the good things, the beautiful things that were in that day, and to maybe ask pardon for something that I recognize um, I could have done better. Um, and so that's called an examination of conscience. And you want to look both at the good and at the bad, not just at the bad, right? An examination of conscience isn't about beating myself up. It's about asking for God's help and for sharing the day with him. All right, does that make sense? Contemplative prayer is something that, so contemplative prayer is a like meditation. So I don't, 
my advice is not to start with contemplative prayer because that's something that comes um, usually later on in the spiritual life. But the idea would be this. If I set aside time to meditate with God, um, let's say every day, and I do that, and I'm faithful to it, there'll come a time, hopefully, in which my words are going to be less important. And sometimes I'm going to be, I'll feel drawn to silence before God and to let him take a bigger role. I, I can't force that. Um, so this is a common mistake of beginners, to want to try and contemplate when I really should be meditating. That is, in meditating, I'm doing more. And in contemplating, I'm receiving more. But I can't control that. Right? But here, the general rule of the spiritual life is, if God gives you something to contemplate, take it. Right? Receive it and be quiet with that and sit with it. And that's the best form of prayer. Sometimes people f feel, well, I, I learned to meditate, and now I don't have anything to say. I'm not doing a good prayer. But no, if you're in the presence of God, um, and there's not so much need for words, right? that's a beautiful thing. There's a famous story about the, um, a great pastor, so he's called the St. John Vianney. He was a, um, a parish priest in this little village in France in the 19th century. He had 300 people in his village. But he was one of the great um, uh, pastors of all time. And people started to come to his little village from all over France to go to confession with him. Um, in any case, he tells the story about um, a parishioner who would come and spend an hour, two hours in church every evening. And so he asked him, what, excuse me, what do you do when you come and sit here in church? And so the man said, um, I look at Jesus, and he looks at me. <laughs> that, that's pretty good. And so what? So uh, Vars was, St. John Vianney was very impressed. Right? So it's the point being, you want the Holy Spirit to be guiding you. Right? And sometimes we're going to need to ask lots of things. And sometimes we're going to need to be more silent. And usually that happens later in the spiritual life. Okay. All right. Yeah, so my recommendation, if somebody wants to start this, right, if you want to start your 10-minute appointment or 15-minute appointment with God, would be to make use of the daily mass reading and to read, so this is called Lectio Divina. It's just a Latin term for reading scripture, right? How should I read scripture? And it's um, the key idea here, let's see if I got it. Yeah, ask the Holy Spirit to help me. Read the text slowly. Use your imagination, right? Let's suppose we're reading, I don't know. So today's, today's gospel was... Um, the father who had two sons, right? And he asked his two sons to go work in the vineyard. And the first one said no. But then he went. And the second one said yes and didn't go. All right, it's really simple scripture, right? And so we can easily imagine, right, the father. All right, that's God the father. Who are the two sons? Me in different times of my life, right? There are times in my life in which I was um, saying no, but then other times in which I went into the vineyard, and then times in my life in which I said yes, but didn't do it, and didn't follow through, et cetera. And so that could be, right? And I can then ask the Lord to help me to see how that applies to me and my life. Right? And that's what's gonna be most fruitful. 
right, to take the gospel, because the gospels are written not just to be a history of something that happened 2,000 years ago, right, but to apply to our lives. So you read it slowly, use your imagination to paint the picture, imagine that you're there and that you're one of the characters, right, in the gospel. Or another, suppose you're imagining, suppose it's Christmas, and you're praying about, you know, Jesus being born in the manger. You can put yourself, for example, in the figure of St. Joseph, right, who's there and sees this happen. How would he feel? Um, or you can put yourself in the donkey whose, whose manger it is, and Jesus is born there. Um, and whatever, however you want, you know, feel called to do it. Um, and then um, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what God wants you to see. And then you want, at the end, let's suppose I see something about my life. I want to ask for the grace to put it in practice. And then to think of some ways that I could put that in practice. All right, and then you end up thanking him at the end. All right, so that would be one way of doing um, a daily prayer on scripture. And there's no way you can use any text of scripture, right? But um, the, the thing I like about this is if I follow Ibrivia, I don't have to pick. I just pick what the Lord gives me for that day. And then I mentioned before doing an examination of conscience. So a really simple prayer is asking pardon from God at the end of the day for what I did that, that I'm aware of that um, could have been better. And so these are also a prayer that you can use when you go to confession. And so we'll talk about that months from now. Um, it could be something similar, simple like the last one there. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or, oh my God, I'm so heartily sorry for having offended you. I detest my sins. Because of your punishment, that is, I don't want to go to hell. But mo most of all, because they offend you, my God, who are all good. In other words, I'm sorry that I've sinned for two reasons. I don't want, I don't want to be separated from God forever. But more importantly, I've offended someone who loves me. Right? And I firmly resolve, with the help of your grace, to sin no more and to avoid the near occasions. And near occasions, suppose I look at my day and I find out, ah, oh, I fell into this sin and it was because I did this other thing. That's a near occasion of sin. So it could be if somebody's an alcoholic, right? They go into the bar and they have the first drink. For them, that's a near occasion of sin because they should know that if I have that first drink, I won't be able to resist a second one and I'm going to fall. So the having the first drink is a near occasion so if I want to avoid sin, I have to avoid the near occasion, right? Whereas for somebody else, that first drink might be fine because they don't have that problem. They have other problems, all right? Okay. Questions on anything? So the canon goes, we don't have time to go through all this, but the canon goes on going through prayer in Scripture, so this is a very interesting, beautiful section. It's rather long. So it goes through all of the patriarchs and the saints of the Old Testament and examples of their prayer. Right? And so everywhere we turn in Scripture, we find prayer and sacrifice. Right? So with regard to Noah, for example, right, he prays 
we find that Noah walks with God. And that's something that we find in, in various figures. So Noah walked with God. Abraham walks with God. Um, Abraham's heart is attentive to God's word. Abraham is called to sacrifice his beloved Isaac. All right, God's not actually going to be asking for something like that. But he can ask us at times for a sacrifice that hurts. Right? That we can see in our life, I'm called to give something up for some other great good. And yes, that can hurt. Um, but when we offer it, um, that, can, um, that can put us into deeper relationship with God. There's a beautiful example where Jacob wrestles. So Jacob, um, son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob would be grandson of Abraham. And there's a section where he wrestles with God. It's strange. It's mysterious. What does that mean? So he's wrestling with an angel. And he wrestles all night. Um, and he asks the angel to bless him. And he won't let him go. So that's an image of prayer. So in prayer, in some way, we can be wrestling with God. Show me your will. Or even it could be, I, you know, I don't find the strength to do this. Um, and um, give me that strength to do this. Give me clarity so I can see what you're calling me to. Right? So that can be, prayer can be like wrestling with God in a, in a positive way. Right? And we're looking for his blessing. And beautiful prayers of Moses. So Moses, we're told, spoke with God as friend to friend. Right? So that's the idea of, Prayer is something intimate. Um, Moses climbs the mountain, in other words, to take a space of our life um, so we can have a God corner, going to church, some place where, some mountaintop where we converse with God. And we ask him um, for things. And one of the beautiful things that Moses asks for is that God forgive the chosen people who have sinned in many ways, right? So he's asking for forgiveness for his people. Right? So they worship the golden calf. And Moses asks them, um, asks God to forgive his people. Right? And so Jesus, right, on the cross, similarly asks for forgiveness for his executioners. Yeah. King David asks for forgiveness after he commits adultery and murder. Right? And that psalm, there's a psalm that's expressing that. Desire for forgiveness, Psalm 51. Questions? And then Jesus has many, many prayers um, in the New Testament. Right? So even at the very end, I thirst. Questions on prayer? Okay. Um, so I'm entrusting this to you as a task and to myself as well. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of prayer, for the gift that you want to be in relation with us and speak with us. And we ask for your grace to do it in the Holy Spirit. We ask you through Christ our Lord, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.